You're listening to the You Mentor Talk Show. I'm your host, Fatima Al Sayed, and this week's show is brought to you by EBC Printing. On this weekly talk show, we invite experts to learn from their career journeys as professionals in their fields. Tune in every week on Saturday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to hear the advice of these professionals. And remember, if you have any questions for the panelists, you can always leave them in the comments section. Today's guest is Amin Karami. Amin develops power sources for implantable medical devices that use the body itself. Amin, how are you? Good, good. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Um, Just an introduction for everyone. Uh, Dr. Amin Karami is a Professor of, uh, of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering. Um, I'm excited to hear about your work in the field and your experience uh, being a professor. So thank you for being here today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So let's start with a little bit um, about you. Uh, what inspired you to get into the field of engineering? Um, so engineering is general. Um, I mean, I. I was very really specific when I, when I chose discipline. So I remember in high school, uh, I mean, I looked at different subjects and my really two favorite subjects, uh, one was medicine and the other one was mechanical engineering. Mm-hmm. And I was very particular about that because, you know, uh, when I looked at different disciplines like electrical, um, uh, civil, I mean, mechanical had, some, had something different for me and I, and I did have, um, I think, a special talent for it. And basically, I liked it so much um, that I chose to um, uh, I chose that discipline uh, when I wanted to go to college. Mm-hmm. And it actually um, it was um, not the, the the top rank at the time. So the top rank was electrical engineering. And yeah. my parents were saying, "Go for that. Go for electrical engineering. You can do it." And I and I really didn't want it. And I knew that if I chose that, that would not be my passion. That would be something that I've chosen it because you know it's. Uh, it's perceived to be a good discipline, but that's mm-hmm. not me. And um, I chose mechanical because um, I had a special feeling for it. How did you know? Uh, how did you figure out that special feeling? What made, what pulled you towards mechanical? So when I was in high school, I mean, um, we did some extracurricular activities. The, the regular mm-hmm. courses were, um, I would say, they were dull. Um, but I, I tried different things. I tried computer science just, just as a hobby to begin with. But uh, at the time when we were at high school, if we chose to, um, you know, participate in the Olympiad, um, we were we could not go to classes, and um, there were some classes they really didn't want to go. So mm-hmm. I chose that, and I realized, yeah, I, I can I can solve tough problems relatively easily. I mean, compared, mm-hmm. compared to myself acting in other fields, and that's when I um, found my passion, and that's when I found my strength in that area. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Um... You decided to continue in the field in the side of research um, and continue your education. What prompted that decision? So um, it so you can do different things, but um, mm-hmm. um, I always had this thing. Um, so I think what you mean by research is my um, most dominant research, which is doing biomedical engineering research. Mm-hmm. So I'm in um, my background has been mostly mechanical engineering and some aerospace engineering. Um, but what I do is um, a big part of what I do is biomedical engineering. Yeah. And uh, 
I basically love that medicine part so much. And I'm not a doctor. I never claimed to be a doctor, but I like um, those subjects. And I had this passion that, yeah, um, I really like to work in this area. So my PhD was, I mean, I come from a background which is mostly focused on um, monitoring um, health of uh, bridges in civil mm -hmm. engineering and monitoring health of airplane, air, airplanes mm -hmm. in aerospace engineering. So that kind of a strict engineering uh, perspective. Mm -hmm. But toward the end of my PhD, I said, you know what, this is my passion, I have to do it. And that's when I started looking at the application that I'm right now looking at, which is the heart pacemakers. Mm -hmm. And um, I found, wow, this is, this is such an untapped area. Um, people do not really wanna get engaged in multidisciplinary activity because it's strange to them. And it's such an easy thing to do and, and such a high impact thing to do. Um, so when you're an engineer, um, a lot of times what we do uh, is going to make a small improvement or it's going to make something, you know, if you're an aerospace engineer, you're going to make a missile, which I never did and I never liked to do. Mm -hmm. But if, if you are, if you're working in medicine, I mean, you are making something that can save lives mm -hmm. and you really enjoy doing this research um, and basically uh, resonates with your background and resonates with, you know, the your, your parents, your grandparents, and basically their um, health history and everything. So mm -hmm. um, it, I really picked it as something that I really like to do. And I'm very happy that I did. Can you tell us about um, your path in education? So where did you do your undergrad and how did you get to the point you're at now? Sure. So I'm from Iran and basically I did uh, my undergrad in Iran, in Tehran. That's where I'm from, in, in uh, Sharif University. Mm -hmm. And then after that, uh, I chose to go for my master's to Canada. So I went mm -hmm. to University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. And uh, for PhD, I went to Virginia Tech. Um, and for my postdoc, I went to uh, University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Mm -hmm. And after then, um, I joined the University at Buffalo. It's part of the State University of New York system. And I've been there ever since. And this was a continuous path, no breaks? Uh, pretty much, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm not sure, maybe a break could, could have helped um, giving me some more perspective, but mm -hmm. um, the way things turned out, it was a you know, back to back thing. Yeah. Um, if you were in the, in I mean, did you work in the industry um, of mechanical or aerospace engineering? Um, no, I, I never had a full-time job in industry. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, I have been collaborating with industry as part of my research throughout. Um, yeah. Right now I'm collaborating. I have a couple of projects which are heavily industrially oriented and I, and I try to commercialize my ideas, which means that I have to go to industry and I have to reason to them that what mm -hmm. you make makes sense and I have to prove that what you make is feasible. Uh, and I've done internship, but I've never... Um, being a full-time um, like uh, employee at industry. Mm -hmm. What are the pros and cons of working in industry versus, um, you know, working as what you're doing now, professor, researcher, uh, making your own schedule? So um, I would say the best thing about the um, kind of the faculty job is you mm -hmm. can you can work on whatever you like. You can hear something in the news and the next day you say, wow, this is such a cool thing. I really want to join this research. And from the next morning, you can. I mean, mm -hmm. this, is, this is really, you know, um, I, too idealistic because to work on a project, you need to have the funding, the people who work on it and the equipment. So you can't really 
switch sides in, in, in a uh, blink. blink of an eye. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, the potential is there. Whereas if mm -hmm. you're an industry and if you find something which is really amazing, you can't simply work on that. You have to basically convince your manager um, to work on it. Or if you have your own company, you have to, you know, um, you sometimes have to be cautious because, you know, you have to make sure that what, what you're doing is not just a, um, kind of an, an idea which may or may not work, but it does have some future in terms of uh, economic size and, and mm -hmm. you know, um, the fact that it can work out economically as well. Mm -hmm. This is the good side. Um, and But the downside of being a professor is, you know, you're on your own. So you have to, you have to go out and you have to seek out and you have to see what is out there. And basically every once in a while, practically that is five years, you do have to change your field because the old field that you were working on is saturated. Saturated means that um, the big problems are solved. There's some small technical stuff mm -hmm. that, you know, are not worthwhile for publication. So what we do in at university, I mean, we, um, the main measure for success is publication, and each publication has to be novel. The novelty is a big deal. So if mm -hmm. somebody at the other corner of the universe does it and publishes that, you're done. Yeah. Um, it's it's tough, and at the same time means that you know if you're, for example, making a tiny improvement or if you're, you're making something for the first time, and you're able to sell it. Uh, so if you're able, if you're uh, able to make something and sell it, it doesn't count unless it's the, for the first time. So this is definitely challenging um, in the fact that you have to be constantly on the outlook and you have to always search for new ideas to work on. Mm -hmm. And that can be um, a little discouraging if you're working on something you spent so many years and then suddenly you find it somewhere else and you're like, wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're methods. So um, basically, uh, like if you want to choose a field, if you want to decide to work on a field, first of all, you have to have something special. Like you have to know something that, you know, the other people do not know. Otherwise, if you heard about it, uh, other people have already heard about it and maybe they have already, already finished it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, we, like the scientific community moves as a community. So we go to conferences which are like similarly minded people mm -hmm. and you get to see who's working on what. And basically before they actually make that final publication you get to hear from what they're doing in, in conference presentations so mm -hmm. um like if you see that you know there are already five people who are working very closely on what you want to work on you don't approach it you say you know it's it's uh, too late um yeah. i found about that late let me look mm -hmm. at a different subject yeah um can you tell us a bit more about the experience of being a professor um what's what has been your experience so uh being a professor, um, there are, there's a huge changing point. And that changing point is at the end of the sixth year. And that's called the tenure evaluation. Mm -hmm. um, before then, basically, um, you are evaluated very strictly. And the most um, measure of success, a more significant measure of success is how much funding um, you got and uh, how many publications you have. So basically, mm -hmm. I mean, there, um, the formal way of evaluating people is three sides. Um, teaching, service, and research. So teaching is um, course evaluations. How well did you do in, when you were teaching? And how innovative were you when you were teaching? Um, service means, you know, service to the community. If you organized a session in a conference or a conference itself, uh, if you help with the graduate studies at your department, if you help recruiting students, if you help reaching out to minorities. Um, so uh, that service and research is, you know, funding and papers and number of uh, students graduated. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, the way they say it is, you know, it's 40, 40, 20. So um, service has to be there, teaching has to be there, but they are typically not decisive. They can, they can stop you. Like if you are a very bad teacher and everybody complains about you, they, that can stop you. But, but that doesn't make you go over that um, tenure hurdle. The mm-hmm. main thing it does is research. And especially when you start off, I mean, things are tough. Um, so during the PhD, and if somebody does postdoc, we get comfortable with writing. Um, we, have, we basically know how to write papers. But getting funding is a different uh, world and knowing uh, how to approach it and knowing how to get it. And it's also such a hit and miss that, you know, you never know if it works out and you know if it works out uh, basically um, the success rate is one in 20 so you practically have to send out 20 just to get one yeah. and it's really frustrating the first few years are tough um, because you're starting everything by yourself um, you're starting your lab you're buying equipment you're hiring a student um, everything from your office um, telephone um, to the equipment in your lab you have to do it that's a huge amount of work yeah. And getting yourself known, getting yourself known to other faculty and to students, that's a huge thing to start. So it's really, really nerve wracking the first mm-hmm. few years. Um, it's, it's a common experience for everybody. Yeah. But then when you reach tenure, you get job security, which means that they cannot kick you out. Um, that is both good and bad because uh, at that point, you know, you can just let go of everything and just, you know, waste your time, waste your life and be one of the boring professors that don't do anything except going in class and, and teaching the same old material over and over. It sort of takes uh, away that motivation of, you know, I need to do this. I need to get to this point. Exactly. Exactly. But if you choose to go on um, with your research and if you choose to be active, um, that would be still tough work, but um, you know, you have a choice. It's mm-hmm. not that if you do not do that, you're going to lose your job. Yeah. Um, is there a business part uh, or do you have to have a business mind when you're proposing your ideas and your, uh, do you have to shape it in a way that the university can take it and profit off of it? Um, yes and no. Um, mm-hmm. So there are two types of proposals. Um, one type is basically um, called SBIR, STTR, um, and basically commercialization. So these are basically very industry oriented um, if you want to submit those proposals, you have to have a really nice business plan mm-hmm. that you have to know how this idea that you have is going to make it to the market. Um, the other side, which is uh, more important actually before tenure, um, that is the fundamental research. Mm-hmm. So in fundamental research, what you have to show is what you're doing is really novel and it's really relevant, meaning that if you do that, it's not just you did something, but other people can use that as well. Mm-hmm. So. Um, for fundamental research, it's not mostly about how much money you make, but it's um, how big and how common of a problem you're attacking and you're mm-hmm. solving. So it's mostly trying to say that, you know, A, this is an important area, and B, this part of it, it's not done, and C, if that part is done, it's going to make a big difference. So mm-hmm. um, you don't see, uh, maybe there is, you know, a number thrown like, you know, this industry uh, is... Uh, has this like big of a market size, but that's um, nothing is evaluated based on that number. And you're practically saying that what I'm working on is important, which everybody is. Mm-hmm. Uh, the main part is you just saying that, you know, what I've done is novel and what I've done is also challenging. Mm-hmm. And it's going to make a difference. Um, Absolutely. It'll yeah. be used. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so moving on to the teaching side of 
uh, your career. Uh, what's the most difficult part of that, and what do you love about it? Uh, so the most um, difficult part of teaching is, you know, um, you have to tailor your teaching to every class, and mm-hmm. uh, you cannot basically say that I'm going to do this and, and you go ahead and do that because you know uh, your class has to follow you. Um, and the other part, part, which is tough, is you have to keep your class engaged, which means that you have to do your best to make what you're doing interesting. You cannot just go and repeat the old material over and over and hope that you have the class. So for example, what I do in my teaching is I do discuss my research. And um, I do that at the undergrad level and I do that at the grad level. I say, you know, you know, guys, this is what I'm teaching you. And you might think that, you know, why am I learning this? I use it in this research. And then that is when you can get that. But the research changes every day. And, you know, something that you can't put um, today, you cannot put five years down the road because that's old material. Um, Mm -hmm. So um, basically changing the teaching material um, basically every year, you don't have to, uh, you know, if it's a course that you're teaching over and over, you don't have to um, start from scratch. You basically change 20%, 10 or 20%, not much, Mm -hmm. not more. And that 10 or 20% is really the exciting part. That's typically Mm -hmm. toward the end when you have covered most of the material and you're just adding the kind of trendy, interesting material. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but teaching is not for everybody. Um, I happen to like teaching. And um, when I was you know, a grad student, I did do TA. I did teach for my uh, professor and I love it. Um, I, uh, I do take joy from it. So at the end of the class, I, I feel that, wow, I accomplished something. Today, at this hour, at the end of this hour, I did teach these students something they did not know. And I, and I hope that, you know, this is going to help them. And I hope that this is a great service. Um, I, I, fe- I feel that this way. Um, but some people I, and a lot of my friends, um, they find teaching very tedious, boring job that you are just saying some material. Very um, repetitive. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it is a big personality thing. And I think it's a big um, difference between doing an industry job versus doing an academia. Yeah. Um, it's that teaching. What advice do you have for someone who does want to continue in the path of academia? Um, So it depends on where they are. Um, I would say if if you want to go to academia, you must have a PhD. Mm -hmm. Uh, And PhD is tough, Um, especially the first year is tough. It's because research is tough. Um, When you're working on something, um, you have to get to the state of the art material and you have to make your way there, which means that um, the first year would be you learning a lot of stuff and you not being productive. And um, research, when you start it off, it does get stuck. If you, mm-hmm. if you do a research and it doesn't get stuck, that means you know, it's so easy that probably somebody else is doing it right now. Yeah. Um, what the actual contribution you make is you, know, you get a stock, you struggle through that, and then you make a contribution that resolves that thing and you become famous for that. And that's how you get your PhD. Mm-hmm. So you do have to have patience. Um, you do have to have perseverance for that. It's tough um, the first year, but the last couple of years uh, are the best part because you invest in yourself, you learn a lot of stuff, and then you gain speed you, and you gain momentum. So mm-hmm. typically the first paper, it, it, it definitely takes a year. Sometimes it takes two years to come out, but then the paper after that would be six months. The paper after that would be three months. And you know, the last year you may publish three papers uh, or four papers just in the last year. So mm-hmm. um, having patience is essential and having patience is the, the tough part in doing the PhD. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. Because you have to become the expert in that specific area that you're looking into. Exactly. Uh, So it takes time. Um, And advice for people who are going into engineering um, as a career, as a professor, what do you advise them? Uh, I think the best thing to do is to be um, interdisciplinary and to Mm -hmm. not focus on any specific discipline. Uh, I'm a mechanical engineer, and if I have focused on mechanical engineering alone, I could not do anything today, because mm-hmm. today anything you touch, you know, you do have electrical instrumentation, and that's part of it. And if you're engineering that, that has to be there. So um, you do have to let your curiosity take you, and definitely look at different disciplines, and and take something from every discipline, because you would need that. And you know, interdisciplinary today. It used to be just, you know, different disciplines of engineering, electrical, computer science, and mechanical, mm-hmm. for example, for my case. Um, today, it's, it's more uh, diverse than that. You have to, for example, know a little bit of medicine. You have to know a little bit of biology. And, you know, with this AI and, you know, this cognitive science coming up, now you have to know um, sometimes some psychology and all of these different areas that do not occur in the first, uh, to mind in the first place. So... Um, my suggestion would be, you know, try to be diverse and try to look at different subjects, even though you think that that is never going to be used in what I'm doing, because you never know. And knowing that is a big strength that, that would, you know, down the road, hopefully come to your help. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you for that advice. Um, I think it's going to be useful for people who do want to get into the field, who want that information from someone who is teaching uh, the field. Um, something I want to move on to is your actual research before, while we still have the time. Mm-hmm. Um, earlier, I mentioned that you um, work, are working on life-saving devices. Can mm-hmm. you tell us a bit more about those? Absolutely. Um, one of the key things I do is um, I look for powering implantable medical devices from the body itself. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of what I do is focused on pacemakers. And so pacemakers are devices... Um, which regulate the heart by sending electrical signals to the heart muscle. Um, The common pacemakers that we find, they run on batteries. And um, there has been a huge uh, uh, evolution of these devices to reduce the battery power. And it's a really fascinating story. Um, Right now, they consume uh, about a few microwatts, which is extremely low power. But they Mm -hmm. run on permanent batteries. And those batteries do deplete, and they typically deplete in about 10 years and they need to be replaced. Now, uh, we hate replacing batteries. I mean, for our you know, day-to-day you know, devices, <laughs> Normal uh, devices, smoke detectors, you know, all mm-hmm. of these things. When it comes to an implantable medical device, changing a battery means surgery. Mm-hmm. And it's not surgery. It's not just a simple surgery that you can go and do anywhere. On the traditional kind of uh, pacemakers, they do need um, uh, basically expert doctors, expert surgeons who do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do know a person back in Iran um, who had his pacemaker implanted in the U.S. when he was a student in the U.S. And the pacemaker needed a battery change. And he just didn't do it because, you know, he was busy. He was really busy, a really uh, productive person. Mm-hmm. And you may not believe that the pacemaker ran out of battery and he died. Mm-hmm. As, as simple as that. Um, so it's not just, you know... Yeah, uh, we, we know when the battery depletes and you have a year to come and uh, replace that. So How often try, do you have to get it replaced? Sorry. About 10 years, about okay. seven to 12 years. So mm-hmm. probably 10 years. Yeah. yeah. So what we are doing is we're saying, you know what? Um, 
basically um, what I've been focused uh, on before the, my medical research was um, to generating energy from vibrations. And that was mm -hmm. airplanes, wings, motion, or bridge vibrations, these kind of stuff. I said, you know what? We have this heart. It's moving. It's really vigorously moving. And the pacemaker is really close to the heart. Uh, the newer generations are in the heart. I'm going to talk about it in a second. Mm -hmm. Why can't we use the heart motion? Um, and it's so significant, you can feel it. Um, at the time, I did not know how significant it is. We opened animals, we opened um, chest cage of animals to measure heart motion. Mm -hmm. And I, that was when I saw, wow, this is, this is significant. And so basically what I've been doing is trying, up, um, trying to come up with different generation of what we call piezoelectric devices, which when they're shaken, they generate power. Mm -hmm. um, the newer generation, which is the implantable pacemakers, these are the ones that go in the heart. They're really small. Um, they're basically um, the size of a grain of rice. And um, they, they, people always wanted to get do that because they have multiple advantages, but the size uh, limited the battery size and they were not even realized. Now they are realized today, but um, when the battery in those devices deplete, you cannot take them out because when you implant them in the heart, tissue is gonna go around them. And mm -hmm. by the end of that um, seven to 10 years, you cannot take it out. And you, what you practically would be doing, I mean, these are so recent that, you know, none of them has reached their lifetime yet. I mean, they're two, three years in the market. Mm -hmm. um, you have to just turn off that uh, pacemaker, put another one in. And in the long run, you make, you're turning the heart chamber into a graveyard of these pacemakers. So what mm -hmm. we're trying to do is, you know, um, taking out the battery, putting our regenerative power generation tool, and that would generate the power forever. So you don't have to go through surgery and you, your heart chamber is not going to turn into a graveyard. When you um, talk about this, it sounds so simple, but <laughs> I'm sure it's not. So tell us a little more about how difficult uh, it is to actually get this implemented and going. Yeah, it's, um, it sounds simple. So I, I was not aware of it, but people actually suggested doing that back in 1960s. I did not know that then, but what they came up with produced zero power, a perfect zero power, because it's difficult to make these devices. So um, I worked on energy harvesting area for five years and I developed multiple technologies which allowed me to um, have something ready for this. Mm -hmm. And there was a peak and there still is a peak in energy harvesting that started from 2000. And I was you know, lucky enough to be part of that and develop that technology. The key thing is you these devices are really tiny. And, and when, because they're so tiny, you cannot have a device which is flexible and is giving power. So a lot of engineering has to go in that, um, that you know, it came through, through um, looking at industrial applications um, mm -hmm. that is now being utilized now. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for sharing uh, your experience and everything that you have gone through from the beginning of your career until now. Um, for your valuable advice in what it takes to become both a professor, a researcher, and um, a successful student um, within the field of engineering. Um, so thank you. You're welcome. You're most welcome. Um, so before we get to the end of our show, I just wanted to ask you one final question is, what do you want to leave our listeners with? What is your final piece of advice? Uh, that's tough. Just, uh, <laughs> the hardest question tough. of the show <laughs> yeah uh, i mean i talked about different aspects um i i did not talk about how my fate helped me mm -hmm. uh, in my career so um i just want to uh, talk about that as well in the last minute that we have yeah. 
and that is that that has been a huge part of my career and because a lot of things that you know um, you know they, they do need patience and they do not have a, an immediate reward so just being able to trust god and just being able to you know um, just release things to him and say you know what i'm going to do my part and just you take care of the ending um, i just do whatever i can do and I don't have to worry about, uh, you know, how things would turn out. I think that's a huge deal. And to be honest with you, a lot of things that I learned throughout the years, um, I thought they're just a useless thing that they have to do right there just to get a grade and it has happened. A lot of them actually played out really interestingly down the road and they helped me um, like design these devices. So um, I would say that, and I want to thank God and I want to say that, you know, this thing did help me quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And it's not just quite a bit, it was a fundamental uh, motivation tool that I had and a fundamental help that I had throughout. Mm-hmm. And it's something that isn't something that comes and goes. It's something that's a base in your life that you use as a source of power. Uh, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It, it's beyond the profession. It makes you be satisfied with your life, which mm-hmm. is a huge deal. Thank you so much, I mean. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot for having me. You were just listening to the Umentor Talk Show. If you missed this or future shows, you can always hear the replay on the Umentor website under prior talk shows. And while you're there, why not subscribe to our iTunes podcast so you never miss another show? If you want to reach out to any of our speakers, either today's speaker or previous speakers we've had on the show, visit our online platform at umojaoutreach.org slash unleash the future slash groups, or just visit the Umentor website and hit the link for online platform. And don't forget, this year's Emoji Games 2020 are held in Richmond on July 3rd to 5th. Be sure to tune in next week on Saturday at 3 p.m. to hear from our next guest.